This is Smart People Podcast, a podcast for smart people, where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks for tuning in. You know, with the amount of book titles that come across my desk and emails we get and things that we do, it's rare that I find something absolutely fascinating that is completely unknown to me. Yet, here we are with this week's episode. I am really pumped to bring you this one. The reason being, I think the things we talk about here can be extremely impactful. And I also think there's a lot more to uncover. But the point is, I'm hoping that I'm introducing most of you to something new. That you can say during this time you were exposed to a really powerful idea that you had otherwise not known about. And that idea is called polyvagal theory. Now listen, at its basic level, the polyvagal theory seems pretty obvious. However, like most things, the more you dig, the more questions you have. I want to caveat this episode by saying there are parts of it that are relatively easy to understand, should be really engaging, should prime your curiosity. There are other parts that are deep and tough to understand. And there's even a point where I just told him, I don't know what you're saying. I also did my best to try to simplify things or understand it myself. Sometimes I think I succeeded. Other times I failed. The point in this is if you're not in the headspace to really learn something new and maybe pay attention, it might not be the right episode. I'd go back and find one that's more casual, but this is absolutely worth your time. This week on the show, we are talking to Dr. Stephen Porges, who is the founder, the creator, the uncoverer of the polyvagal theory. He is the co-author of the new book, Our Polyvagal World, How Safety and Trauma Change Us. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the idea of polyvagal theory, which is related to the vagus nerve, which many of you know of. It's this idea that the level of safety we feel impacts our health and happiness, which I think we all understand. However, what is the science behind this? Where does it come from? How do we understand it? And how do we utilize it? Steven is the originator of the polyvagal theory. He's a distinguished university scientist and founding director of the Kinsey Institute Traumatic Stress Research Consortium at Indiana University and a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina. Do me a favor. Send this episode to somebody that you think loves the topic of self-improvement, self-awareness, and emotional intelligence. When you do, you will solidify your place as the smartest one in your friend group. You can find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Tell a friend. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss anything. Let's get into it. My conversation with Dr. Stephen Porges about his new book, Our Polyvagal World, How Safety and Trauma Change Us. Enjoy. As somebody who is really considered the, the, the founder of this idea, I think that the one who uncovered it, polyvagal theory, why do you think it's important for the average person to at least be aware of this? Yeah, I think it's what we tend to forget is our own bodily state, our own physiological state has a great effect on how we react and live in the world. 
So when our bodies are calm, we're more resilient, we're more engaging, more accepting of others. And when our body's in a state of, let's say, uh, mobilization or threat, we're extremely evaluative and defensive. And understanding what that is and how it impacts us. And, and, and actually understanding to be aware of it and then kind of understand who we are at that point in time and then managing ourselves with that information. You know, again, we're going to get into the theory, but before we do, I'm curious on just the people who heard what you just said, I think often say, well, look, fight or flight or this idea of feeling stress is an evolutionary adaptation that's got us to where we are. It is a key component of who we are and it's it's normal, natural, et cetera. Would you say that we are in greater moments of stress now than we were back when survival was more difficult? Um, not necessarily. So okay. the, the question though is you're really hitting on the really the important point, and that is we have a nervous system that is very uh, accessible to respond to threat. But what we forget, and this is like when people say, oh, we've always done this, the, the part of the evolutionary journey of a social mammal, and we are social mammals, is not our threat reactions. We uh, inherited those literally from the primitive reptiles that became the uh, primitive mammals. So threat reactions are really wired into us. What became unique is this ability to detect signals of safety from another of our species or related species so that we can literally be calmed down by the presence of another person or perhaps a pet like a cat, dog, or horse. And we experience that. And the issue is our ability to react, yeah, no problem. Our ability to calm, our ability to be calmed is really the important part that enabled society to occur, enabled businesses to occur. Of course, being able to literally be co-regulated by another human being allowed us to be physiologically safe enough in the presence of another to develop feelings of trust. And that's the basis of business and relationship. When you say that co-regulated by somebody else, I think there's this initial reaction of dependence yeah. and that being a bad thing. Yeah, well, you know, even in our parenting style, we want to talk about self-regulation and we need to really start talking about co-regulation and how that e develops into self-regulation because this ability to regulate ourselves doesn't occur independent of a good experience of co-regulating. Basically, let's take any adult, any adult who's in a frightening situation, whether they're going into surgery or they've been you know, injured or they're in a, let's say, in a, in, in, let's say a frightening situation. They're going to use mental images of feeling safe enough in the presence of a significant other, a parent, a loved one, their child, or perhaps even their pet. They'll use that association to feel a sense of being co-regulated, even in the abstract. Do we need to have other people around, or do we need to have that memory or that person or that thing to, to actually feel calm? This is actually, a, it's a much deeper question than you probably realize. Okay, Good. Because we have natural experiments going on all the time of this, and that is people who have been abused within their homes. So they don't have any memories of feeling safe enough in the presence of, let's say, a biological parent. So the biological parent is really the source of injury. Now these individuals 
their nervous system doesn't trust others. And they're very hard to work with in institutions uh, such as uh, therapeutic models, education, because the body has been repurposed, retuned to be defensive. And in the normal developmental trajectory, there are certain people in our lives that our body gives up its defenses as I'm safe in this situation. A part of the problem, uh, of course, as we discuss this, is how people think they should parent their children as opposed because they don't want to, quote, spoil them and the real world is rough. But they don't understand that the co-regulation, the making of the safety is not buffering them or keeping them from going out and expanding and challenging. It's giving them a resource that buffers them from the disruptions. And so it's almost counterintuitive. It's saying, if I have good co-regulation, guess what? I can literally reject the co-regulator and go off and be uh, expand my life experiences and take on interesting challenges. But if I don't have that good co-regulator, how do I feel? I never feel safe enough. Now, there are a lot of, I would say, people have spent decades on developing what they would call attachment theories. And I'm just basically saying you don't need the complex theory. You just have to ask the question, does your body Has your body felt safe enough to trust another? We just dove so right in into an amazing subject. And I want to just pause and make sure I understand it, make sure those listening get it. By having a parent early on in your life that you trust and feel safe with, that will do a number of things. One is it will allow you to build trust in others in the future Hmm. because you have that model. The second point we discussed is, as a parent, it is okay to fully embody that source of trust for your child without worrying about maybe coddling or overindulging them, because that will give them the ability to self-regulate in the future. Yeah, but you're bringing, first of all, it doesn't have to be a biological parent. Okay. It, it can be someone in close proximity during development. So we don't want to say that we're so limited to only our biological parents. And for some individuals, they literally have had pets, dogs and horses that served in a, let's say, a dysregulated home to help them co-regulate in that situation. So we see the flexibility and adaptiveness of the human with other social mammals. So I'm basically giving you an optimistic story here. The other part, I mean, of course, we would like loving parents who are mature enough to realize that that's their role is to create an unconditional safety network for their child without uh, evaluating that they're spoiling them. But what happens is they think of co-regulation as protection. That's not what I'm saying. You don't have to protect your child, and that's not what the nervous system of the child is feeling. The nervous system of the child wants the presence of the parent to be there in case they need it. They, We are naturally curious people. You're a curious guy. That's what this whole uh, podcast is about. So the creativity, the curiosity, the expansiveness of thinking is wired into you, and it's wired into, that's what it is to be a human. And often when we think of, of taking care of our children, we literally create the boundary that interferes with that creativity expansiveness. And I'm saying the co-regulation is more that I'm present with my child, I'm there for them, 
I'm not stepping between them and this ability to experience the world. Of course, you're going to have to at many times. Yeah. But yeah. understand your goal is not to keep them away from the world. Your goal is to enable them to literally slide in, navigate into it. You hit on such a hot button. Last night, I had this discussion with my wife. My kids, I've got three boys and eight, five, and basically a newborn. And uh, the two older ones were sprinting through the house. And often they will slide and slip on our tile and it's going to hurt. So my wife says, hey, don't run over here, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's one. Then two is they were fighting and it got loud and she was like, hey, don't hurt each other. And then there was a, a third issue, very similar at play. And I said, hey, we can't keep telling them to stop doing things. My question to you is, for parents listening, where can we draw that line of being there for them and protection without going too far to take that away? It, listen, it's I'm a parent. My, my kids are probably your age, but you're still a parent. And you still, uh, your your mandate as a parent is you don't want your kids injured. You want to facilitate their, their trajectory and success in life. And when I say we don't want them injured, it's not merely falling and hurt. We don't want them psychologically abused or insulted or humiliated. It's the same thing. We want them to have good experiences. So you have to, there, there's the issue of is it was your or were your children's behavior uh, creating opportunities to be injured, and then you want to intervene. So that becomes important. But if not, if it's, then you say, well, is their behavior merely disruptive to me? Got it. Then you have to place it into a different realm. Maybe you need to, you need to go to another room, or maybe you need to have your kids do whatever they're doing in another place. So you start going into these different, basically, configurations of the same thing. The other one, which I think has, you know, I was caught into, and and so were my parents with me as a child, don't embarrass me. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. So what will they think of me, uh, people on the outside, if my kids act that way? So that we have to be very careful about because kids are kids, and adults literally are reacting and experiencing the world differently. Right. So I think the most important one is the first one, safety. You have, and that's actually, I hate to say this, this is where I see um, father and mother roles being different. And I really, the father role was always setting the boundaries. And I never liked that. That wasn't fun. The mother was always there. You see, I think mother's roles are really kind of, you know, uh, unconditional love. Father's roles are like drawing the line. Yeah. Not not so much fun. So I used to say, can never be a good dad, but you can be a great grandpa and great a good uncle. Because you can literally pick whatever you want to do and have that experience. But the parent has certain responsibilities that are not always always about positive or pleasant experiences. This episode is brought to you by Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. 
Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Head over to factormeals.com smart50 and use the code smart50 to get 50% off. That's code smart50, smart five zero at factormeals.com smart50 to get 50% off. That's a good point. So that was a big thing that we talked about. Another one that you said very nonchalantly, because you know this, but I find fascinating. You said a lot of our kind of generalized fight or flight or stress response evolved from reptiles, which then went to mammals and eventually us or something. I don't know. But there is a different part that is unique to humans, which is our stress response with each other. Could you yeah, go okay. into that a little more? Let, yeah, we're going to uh, unwind this a little bit okay. because when we talk about humans, we're also talking about other social mammals. Dolphin, a dog, a oh, cat, okay. uh, other, other primates, you know, they take care of their young, they play, you know, even you can watch rats play. So it's not oh, like... it's not just... It, it, right. So the interesting one is you can see kittens. I, I always like this picture because I use it. Kittens doing rough and tumble. You can visualize that. And when I was in uh, graduate school, we were saying, oh, they're practicing their hunting skills. Okay. No, nah, that's not what's going on. Wow. Look closely and their claws are attracted. And they, even though they do mouth or bite, they don't break skin. And what they're doing, and they're always maintaining face-to-face interaction. So they're playing. Dogs do this too. When dogs play, they keep face-to-face. When they're in aggressive mode, that face is no longer face-to-face. So we are signaling as a social mammal cues of safety and play versus aggression. And we get confused. So like a cat... Cats can really, they have claws, just think about, and they have sharp teeth. They, it's, it's not the same thing. So hunting is not the same thing as rough and tumble playing. You can see the same things on playgrounds. When do kids get into fights versus when are they enjoying the interaction? It's not the physical contact. It's the violation of face-to-face with physical contact. Mm, okay. To get back to it, you're saying that Social mammals have this, uh, it's, it's a secondary system almost. Well, it's kind of a separate. Okay, so the real part is social mammals have this, and I'm going to tell you what this is. The ability to detect signals from the other of safety. Ah, so when we got it. so so like you you're a a engager. I can tell by your voice, and you like that. But you know, and I'm sure you've had them on the podcast, that there are going to be some people who uh, their voices are not very melodic, their faces are very flat, and in your mind you say, holy crap, I have to do an hour with this person? Exactly. How, how do I get this <laughs> no person comment. alive? Right? How do I get them alive? What do I do? What do I say? So what 
that person did was based on their physiological state, which might be locked into a, a state of, I'm going to use the term threat or fear. They were broadcasting that to you, which is a violation of that co-regulation engagement. And how did your nervous system respond to it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is, so, yeah, well, I have a term that I call biological rudeness. <laughs> okay. okay, so let's, let's pretend, let's create this scenario where you, you with your, you know, kind of uh, uh, exuberance and excitement and engage and say, hi, Steve. And I kind of like turn away. How, how do you feel? I will. My first thing would be like, uh oh, what did I do? That's right. Yeah. It, it, it is biologically rude because I dis, you had the expectancy of a reciprocal. Hi, Chris, how are you doing? Yeah. And that was the completion of that neural expectancy. So the violation of turning away, which occurs in real life very frequently, uh, creates a physiological feeling that something's wrong. What did I do? Like what you said. So what happens, let, let me kind of paint the, to give you the texture. You know, I'm a university professor and you know, I have decades in that interesting arena, which is not noted for its sociality. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's start there. And so let's say I'm a grad student and I want to meet this famous professor. And I walk up to him, put my hand out, and the professor doesn't even look at me and walks by. Now, what's my interpretation? Jerk, first of all, and I'm unimportant. Well, the jerk bit is you don't say that, but you say to yourself, yeah, I'm unimportant. Yeah. Similarly, if you're talking to a famous professor and you're a, a young professor, you have the same thing. So we already have interpreted it as an evaluation and taken responsibility for the response. Now, let's shift the interpretation using the lens of the polyvagal theory, which comes, let's say that the individual's social engagement system, that aspect of the nervous system, is really quite, let's just term, dormant, meaning it has a lot of features of people who would be on autism spectrum, which many academics are. So in a sense, their physiology is not tuned for social engagement. It's tuned for objects, which is part of the uh, selectivity or selection procedures for graduate school in science. Physics and engineering is really not sociality, but the ability to attend to objects. Okay. So you, you follow. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So now with this wonderful big brain that we have, we're making an interpretation that has nothing to do with the in- intentionality of the other. Wow. When moments like this happen, my brain goes, how do I do this in the next 36 minutes? I love this. Okay. First question. Do people have varying degrees of this attunement? And do people have varying degrees of giving it precedence? Okay, so what we're talking about is this gift that mammals have, and that is to calm ourselves down or others through facial expressivity, intonation of voice, uh, signals of safety. And when the when we expect signals of safety uh, and they're not coming, then our bodies feel like, oh, something's violated. And I call that biological rudeness, but there's a violation of a neural expectancy. That's being human. So the fact that you're sensitive is not an intentional aspect of you. You're not going to learn not to be as sensitive. What you'll learn is that when you have that bodily feeling, that visceral feeling, there's a term called interoception, which is what those sensations inside my body feel like. 
you will reinterpret them and say, wow, did my nervous system get tricked again? That's what you'll learn. I got tricked again. Shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's like, it's just kind of a dynamic seductive dance. And when there's a violation of I'm becoming accessible, which is a word I frequently use. And when I, my accessibility is literally being violated, I'm saying, say hello to me, Chris. Mm-hmm. And Chris says, I didn't even see that signal. Right. So I, and so I'm just going on, I'm walking down the hall. I didn't even see you. And so Chris interprets it as dismissive of him when the real causality is that my nervous system didn't detect your cues. And I was just in the same state I was before you walked up to me. Is there a tie to like anxiety or depression or I don't know, name your things? We, we can call it. Yeah, we can build ties to any that stress related disorders, uh, even having fever, even having like uh, you, you're physiologically, you're, you're wasted. You exercised a lot. All these things result in a retraction of the system. So it's like, uh, uh, it's like let's say you're, you, you do a, a jogging, you, you, you do a lot of exercise and you come back home and the signals from your face are not as exuberant or reactive or, and your wife may respond to you and say, what's the matter? Or why didn't you respond to my needs? Or your kids may say, where's that? You mm-hmm. know, it's like mm-hmm. you're not being present for them at the time when their bodies need it. Right. So yeah, this this is the bit. And so in your world of coaching within a corporate model, uh, people think everything is delivered in language. So it's how, it's the words we use, uh, we text, we use words. And they minimize the importance of intonation, the voice, and how people feel with that. And this is, in a sense, it's a naive, uh, okay, it's, I'm going to say almost a stupid strategy, but I don't mean to be dismissive of how most of the world works. But this is, we tend to have the inappropriate belief system. And the belief system is if I send Chris a text, that's sufficient. Chris's nervous system will interpret from my text, my intentionality and what I'm really saying. Now he, it may, but if you go back and you may not be old enough to go back to when uh, emails just started. This is an interesting story because people used to uh, write emails and then you get a email back and say, why are you angry at me? Because they'd be very terse. They wouldn't have a, a hi, how are you? And then how are you, you know, best regard. They didn't have the closure that we were used to having in our social interactions. Okay, and then, then the world moved to texting and this chat. And what happened in that is that the nervous system, when triggered with a message or when you send it, wanted a response in real time. So I would used to ask people, how long can you tolerate a delay between a text and a response before your body shifts state? So, so these are all things that our modern technology brought into our mode of social communication that end up at times being very disruptive to us. And these things are individualized, right? Like, yeah. what is it about people that the answer to that question is different? You know, because my wife, my wife can wait hours and not text and be fine. 
And I'm like, yeah, what? but you can't, but you I can't, cannot. Can't. I cannot. Okay. So you already told me a lot about your system versus your wife. Right. So obviously she's calmer than you are. hundred <laughs> percent. So much. Yeah. So, so obviously again, in terms of relationship with the children, the children feel calm in her presence and in your presence, they're more activated, mobilized, playful. You might see it. Exactly. Uh, okay. So because you're both broadcasting different signals, to, to your children and to each other. So your first question is really the individual difference one. So we've talked really about that we have a neural structure and how do we recruit that? And I'm going to basically say, there's something that I call um, basically autonomic flexibility, or I'm very focused on the vagus, which is a cranial nerve that calms us. But I'm very focused on the ability of that flexibility, which when it gets retracted, enables our sympathetics, our mobilization to be very efficiently uh, recruited. But then when it comes back, it calms us down. So I would basically say your wife probably has a more efficient autonomic regulation so that, yeah, she can play, she can run, she can do that, but it's going to come back down very rapidly. And she, she becomes to you and to the kids very present where you will be more mobilized. Here's the thing. I don't like that. Can I change that? Oh, okay. You, you want everything in an hour. Is that what you want? <laughs> no, no. I, the, I just want you to pique my interest okay, for those listening. <laughs> okay. Okay. First, I would say is, the, of course, you could, but I would start off by saying to understand the benefits and literally the attributes of who you are. So it starts off on the psychoeducational journey of awareness of who we are a better understanding of our autonomic state. And when we become more aware of the state we're in, then it becomes our choice of how we literally navigate in the world. If we're kind of overly mobilized, maybe a quiet room for a little bit, maybe some breathing, maybe a headset with calming music. Maybe that's what you need for a while. And then you can re-engage with more resource. So it, the part that I think you're locked into is the notion of intentionality. And, and the degree of intentionality, once you put it in a realm of intentionality, you feel that you should have control over it. And I'm saying, don't worry about that. Be aware of it. Navigate with it. And as you become aware of it, you gain more control over it. It makes sense. So I think we have kind of backed into a little bit about polyvagal theory. Could you um, just give us your definition for those like myself who had really never heard of it? What does it mean? Well, it, it, let's start off with the, the first first important point, and that is our physiological state impacts on how we respond in the world. And that's really what we've been discussing. Take that as principle one. The second point is to understand that what are the physiological states we could be in? What's, what's the toolkit? What's the resources of our physiological states? And those physiological states are really a combination of how uh, different neural circuits evolved uh, invertebrates, and finally, in terms of mammals, that created three different pathways to regulate physiological state. And those pathways are evolutionarily hierarchically organized, meaning the newest one kind of repurposes and contains the older one. But when you take the newest one off, you're like a reptile at times. You're, you become uh, more aggressive or shutting down. Okay. So the, the newer one is the one that's linked with... Uh, sensitivity to intonation of voice, facial expressivity, mother's lullaby. 
So in the sense a baby can be crying, and we actually did this study. We, we took nine-month-old babies and literally challenged them by the mother would play with them, then the mother would not use her face, basically froze her face, and then re-engage. And that's called still face paradigm. And it was developed by a friend of mine, Ed Tronic. It's really a remarkable thing to observe. But we monitored, we actually recorded the intonation of the mother's voice and the baby's heart rate and distress behaviors. So, so the mother plays for two minutes, freezes her face for two minutes, then re-engages using gestures and words to calm the baby. If you look at the intonation of the mother's voice, mother's voices are they're still talking, but they can be have a lot of intonation, which the word is prosody, a lot of emotion in the word hi, how are you? Mm-hmm. Know, kind of bit. like you might talk. You do you have pets? Yes, I have a dog. How do you talk to your dog? Just like I talk to my five year old. Yeah. And, and what does your five year old and dog do? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. yes. No choice. No choice but to do that because it's wired into them. Now try it with your eight and 11 year olds, more prosodic voices, and they will respond to you more like they respond to your wife. So it's going to be kind of an interesting experiment to try. Anyway, so the voices, we were able to quantify that intonation effect. If the mother's voice was very prosodic, the distress behaviors immediately disappeared and the baby's heart rates dropped by 10 beats per minute. If the mother's voices were not prosodic, no effect on behavior or heart rate of the baby. I, I have so to, that, let, can I pause you real quick? Cause I'm, is this ingrained in us? Because let's say at, as an infant, we can't identify fear. Like we can't identify deadly things. So we have to be able to identify somebody else identifying deadly thing well, something like that no okay so you're you're making again assumptions yeah yeah totally so, so each of the assumptions we need to address and the answer is uh, the nervous system certainly can identify life threat and we see this in preterm babies really easily because they often stop breathing and they often have massive slowing of heart rate called bradycardia and that's a physiological response just like a reptile immobilizing Wow. So it is a literally a life threat response. And, you know, you'll hear stories about people being, being unable to move. They're so scared. That's part of the same system being recruited. And you'll hear people talk about defecating and urinating under those fear because now that older vagal circuit, which I really didn't articulate, is being charged. So let, we need to get that hierarchy. I mentioned it was. Yeah, a I want to hear that. Yep. Okay, the oldest one, which goes way back to uh, jawless fish, is a dorsal vagus. It's in the dorsal part of the brainstem. It's the vagus, the nerve comes out, goes to virtually all our organs in our body. And that was the major neuroregulation in these very primitive ancient vertebrates. And then along the line, uh, a spinal sympathetic nervous system comes in with bony fish. And now you see the coordination group activities. You see sympathetics are mobilizing and enabling the organisms to move. So you had basically these two circuits, and they remain that way for amphibia and for reptiles. But now mammals evolve. And there are a couple of things we understand about mammals. One, they're dependent on each other at birth, which is part of the part you were bringing up. The other one is they do suckle, they nurse. And... The ingestive aspect of suckling is literally a normal, a neural stimulation of that 
ventral, that newer vagal circuit. So what happens in embryology, which is the development of the brainstem in mammals, is some of the cells that regulate the dorsal vagus go on a journey. They go ventrally in the brainstem and they link up with the area of the brainstem that regulates the muscles of the face and head. Now, what does that do? It means that now our facial expressivity, including our vocalizations and our ability literally to listen, are now linked with the vagal regulation of our heart. So we are now broadcasting our physiological state in our face and in our voice. So this is the true story of the evolution of social mammals. They were able to uh, create a safe situation through their vocalizations. They could communicate and say, I'm not in a state of threat. And we still feel that way. We wouldn't go near a barking dog. We wouldn't go near a yelling individual. We still have that same physiological reaction to vocalizations. Oh, we don't like high-pitched sirens and we don't like rumbles of earthquakes. Uh, we, our body is attuned to certain frequencies to say, stay away from it. It's wired into us, but we're wired to certain frequencies that tell us we're safe. And that's the prosodic voice, literally a mother's lullaby. Now, what I did was I actually developed an intervention based upon this principle and where I took uh, basically music and computer altered it to basically modulate it within the same frequencies of a mother's voice. And that's, that's called the safe and sound protocol. And it's used to deal with basically a lot of the disorders you were talking about that, that are associated with like hypervigilance, being always concerned about what's going on around you, auditory hypersensitivities, uh, features of chronic anxiety, uh, features of depression, and even features of autonomic issues like uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and, and irritable bowel. Wow. And so there's these three um, hierarchies. Are they all part of the vagal system or vagus nerve? Well, two of them are. Okay. And and they come from different areas of the brain. Here's the confusion. Because you think you may know nothing, but I would say that most of the, the world, including the medical professionals, also know nothing about this. <laughs> the, and that's why everyone's talking about hacking the vagus. It's very common. Exactly. Like gargling is a new thing or humming, I've heard. Yeah, I want to, yeah. Humming, humming is good. Okay. Humming okay. Is, okay. is good. But, but the issue is... The vagus is a nerve. What does that mean? It's a wire. It's a cable. Okay. It doesn't have intelligence. It doesn't make decisions. So it's a misunderstanding of what's going on. It's a cable. It's a cable plugged into your brain. So the real question is where in the brain are the areas that regulate the vagus? And there are two areas, one in the dorsal area and one in the ventral area. The dorsal area is primarily stuff below the diaphragm. The ventral primarily stuff above it and the linkage of that with the face. Got it. Okay. And so the dorsal one is the one that's that, that part of the brain that it's been around forever. The, yeah. the, um, the other one, ventral, the ventral, ventral is new. That's is, a is, new one. Okay. Yeah. And, and the issue is the ventral is also, let's give a kind of a dash and say it's part of our social engagement system. Right. So what does this mean? It means that social behavior is a vagal nerve stimulator. Yes. Okay. Got it. And that's, that's why it's calming social, be you know, like let's say you're in the hospital or your kids are ill. What do you try to do? You try to calm your child because you know the body will heal better 
when it's common. Okay. And so it's, 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 I know it's not this simple, but for us, it's like, if I'm, if my son is sick and I go up to him, I say, Hey buddy, I know you're not feeling great. Let's, let's, you know, cuddle or whatever. It's, it's basically going to a part of the brain that says I'm safe, which triggers the vagal system, the, the nerve to signal through the wire things that allow the body to heal. enter a certain state state to heal to heal okay and and this is another conceptualization because it polyvagal theory says healing occurs in the body and it's not healing by the physician it is the body that's doing the healing so the signals of healing have to be processed appropriately and if someone is frightened the signals of healing or safety are not going to get there right is it better to be more in that um just a calm state for your body well better you see you're very like, I know. pardon me for my sarcasm no no i get it you're you're, you're very judgmental <laughs> yeah uh, yes. better is only context dependent so you know it's not better if you're let's say in the infantry on the front lines <laughs> yeah. it's not better if you're a first responder so there's a whole series of understanding the context and matching the context with the most efficient and effective autonomic state that gives you the resource to survive. Right. So would you say, again, like autonomic flexibility is a goal? Autonomic flexibility is, our, yeah, is the goal. Yes. Love it. To, to be able to use all these circuits. That's why when we use the word exercise, I love to use the word neural exercise because what we really are doing is moving in and out of these states as an exercise so that we have that flexibility to adapt to complex demands. Does this link up to heart rate variability at all? Oh, certainly does. That's weird. So what you don't know. Because I have an aura ring that I've been. Okay. But what you don't know is my relationship with heart rate variability. I don't. I don't. Let's hear it. Okay. Well, the first one to publish studies on it as an individual difference. Yeah. Was you? And uh, it was me in the 60s. Look at this. Round of applause. Now I'm ready. So everything in polyvagal theory evolved from my research in heart rate variability. Wow. And it was trying to understand the neural regulation of the heart. So we're heart rate variability, you know, like five decades later, where one where it's kind of like I would view it as more pedestrian and less interesting, is that people lost the interest in the neural regulation that was being literally became available through methodologies. And I developed several of these to extract clean measures of ventral vagal regulation. I don't know what that, from, any of that means. <laughs> okay, basically the social engagement system is linked to that ventral vagus, but I actually developed a technology that accurately measures that ventral vagal influence from the heart rate variability pattern. Whoa. But, but what happened was that was very neurophysiologically based. So it's not like saying, well, variability is a descriptive statistic. So people really were gravitating to what's easy. So with aura rings and with even Fitbit, there are measures of heart rate variability, even though they may put lots of money into the algorithm, are not that sensitive to the neural regulation. And this disturbs me from a, let's say, intellectual professional level, because the vision was there that you could develop these very fine-tuned measures of neural regulation. Uh, if you took the time to understand the physiological signal itself. So anyway, that's my history. It's decades of it. So do you think the way that millions of people are 
measuring and understanding heart rate variability has any usefulness? Oh, it has usefulness, but it's like looking at information through uh, filtered lenses. Got it. Okay. When you have, when you literally have the opportunity, or let's say technology has developed to have the opportunity to make more specific measurements, and it's basically part of the history of problem solving, where the problem solving has been they subcontracted to different specialties. So it's like. A, math, a statistician or a signal processor may not have a insight into the neural mechanisms of, of the signal that they are actually uh, measuring. Likewise, the physiologist might not know the best way of quantifying the neural signal. Right, right, right. And the reason I even thought of heart rate variability without knowing your input on it is because I didn't understand it at first, and it still doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but it's this idea that the the greater the variability yeah the- you see you see that that's a miss you see assumption remember what what's our dialogue is the assumptions that leads to misbeats being calculated as enhancing variability and you don't want arrhythmias to contribute to your measure of variability you want to exclude them it has really what the whole basis is that our body regulates various organs uh with rhythmic variations and those signals, like one, so the the vagal measure is really something comes from something that's called respiratory science arrhythmia. It's that there's a systematic increase and decrease in heart rate with inhalation and exhalation, uh, with the spontaneous frequency of our breathing. It's not causal by breathing. It's coming from a common area of the brainstem that is regulating our breathing and also regulating the heart rate. Mm, okay trying to translate if somebody were to leave and say i now understand polyvagal theory okay we we would basically i would say that if you left with an understanding that your physiological state impacted on your behavior that's important number two if you had an understanding of the neuroregulation that defines the physiological state you're in meaning are you recruiting that ventral vagus are you recruiting the sympathetics are you recruiting the dorsal vagus and so it, like it, so there are ways of understanding that you're in a different physiological state and it, when you start understanding the linkage between that ventral vagal regulation and the face and voice suddenly you understand the physiological state of the person seated across from you got it i love that okay uh, so i call that being that's when you're polyvagal informed so you can be a polyvagal informed coach or therapist or a human being you basically have an awareness of the other person's physiological state, and that informs you where to go. Very cool. Okay. You mentioned earlier the, um, the music modality you created. What was the term for that? Oh, it's safe and sound protocol, but we've developed another one. Uh, okay. So yeah, it was designed to trigger that ventral vagus signals of safety, but there's a new one coming out. Uh, it's called Rest and Restore. So remember, we, basically, the intervention was focusing on sociality, hyper, getting rid of hypervigilance, auditory hypersensitivities. The other one says, I'm now safe. Can I talk to the organs, the neuroregulation of the organs below the diaphragm? Can I talk to the dorsal vagus, which is uh, can be recruited and shut down in, in fibromyalgia, in in basically uh, irritable bowel syndrome, can I talk to these organs below the bo- below the diaphragm 
to tell them it's a safe world. You can be calm. That's what this this music is composed to do. It basically has embedded in it the endogenous bodily rhythms of calmness of our viscera. So we can think of the word entrainment with music, and we're comfortable using that because we know what dance and and march music does. But we, but that entrains our skeletal motor. But with different features in the music, we can entrain our viscera, our organs, to calm down. So the new new system is basically calming our body down with music that is composed to talk to the autonomic nervous system. I love. Okay. And another another way of thinking of it is. It's functionally stealth meditation, because when you think about meditation, it's trying to get rid of all those external things that you're reacting to and letting the body do its own endogenous thing. And this is just sending to the body, remember, this is the rhythm that you like. That's what I was going to ask. Is 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 it kind of fair to say that that music, either one, I, I don't fully understand the differences in them, but um, but they can put you into... That yeah. state so, that is more calm, right. essentially. Yeah, but the so the safe and sound protocol is the way you talk to your dog and five year old. Okay, this one is taking talking out of there. You're now safe enough to to close the door, put a headset on, turn the lights out, and you want to literally talk to your body and say, "Come back, help me heal, help me recover, give me resilience, enhance my flexibility." That's what the music is designed for. How can, if somebody's listening and they're like, I need that, I need to, you know. that. Well, the latter one is basically going into, it's going to be available by the end of 2024. It's going into testing. We, we want to find out the clinical uh, effects on it. I mean, there's hypotheticals. And now you want to find out what happens. The safe and sound protocol, there are over, over 3,000 therapists using it. So it means there's tens of thousands of people have been impacted on it. And that is available through this. Do a Google Unite, U-N-Y-T-E, Safe and Sound Protocol, and it'll come up with uh, the company that's distributing it. I love that. Okay. I, I can't let you go without, one of the things that drew me to your work was this statement I read about polyvagal theory potentially having an answer to or playing part in the great resignation. And it talks about the office world and space. Could you tell us a little bit about that linkage? Okay. Because there are a couple of things going on because the pandemic was part of that. And what happened during the onset of the pandemic was that people, our normal go-to object in our evolutionary history to calm us down, they became a signal of threat. Oh, so it became this very paradoxical challenge to our nervous system. Pathogen is a threat, is real. What do we do when we're under threat? What have we done through the history of humanity? Well, we've engaged other people. Now other people became a threat and our nervous system got very confused. And we developed the sensitivity very quickly because I will tell you, I too, and I view myself as a social person, uh, uh, cannot interact with people in the same level that I could beforehand. I get exhausted. Wow. And Wait, a lot of people may. So so many people have said to me, oh, I'm much more introverted post-pandemic than pre-pandemic. Explain yeah. that. What, what are they saying? They're saying? They're saying that their nervous system is overwhelmed with the signals of sociality because their nervous system is confused that those signals are now signals of threat Whoa. and not calmness. Because of the shock uh, of the pandemic. 
Yeah, the, the pandemic retuned us. I thought my nervous system would recover rapidly because I was least aware of this. Now, what I will do, and if you if send me an email, because I'll send you the article, and I wrote an editorial for a psychiatry journal on this uh, paradoxical reaction, and it's actually the most downloaded paper in that whole journal. So, so um, you know, it, it's open access. I'll give it to you. You can share it with people if they want. That's great. I'd love to. And um, are we also impacted by the stimuli of the office? Like the noise oh, yeah. and the pressures and the stress and the okay. eyeballs. Okay. So the, the, there are certain issues of how it's designed, you know, how a, a how work environments are designed, just like how our classrooms designed. I was very much involved in design of a classroom for autistic children. And what I was trying to do was control the sensory stimuli coming in. So windows were raised, so a lot of light, but not busyness. Uh, carpeting and sound attenuation. Lights were literally reflected off the walls, so it wasn't fluorescence bothering people. In a sense, in an office environment, very little uh, information or le very little concern is made to the sensory content. So like if you work with uh, in a bullpen, literally, you know, where you don't have wall to ceiling, you don't have privacy. Your nervous system is locked in a state of hypervigilance. I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I, by the way, before we finish, and I'm going to have to reach down and grab it. I do want, here it is. I do want to uh, mention. Oh, we are absolutely the, going to plug that. Don't you worry. Okay. Oh, for okay. sure. Okay. okay. So I, let me give you a little aside. That's our new book that I wrote with my son, Seth. It's called Our Polyvagal World, How Safety and Trauma Change Us. But Seth actually is was a journalist and now is a filmmaker, and he worked in those bullpens. He worked in those environments. Seth is what I would call a great communicator. And the issue is, how do you take something as literally complicated as polyvagal theory, and how do you make it accessible? And so... Seth gave his father the greatest gift that a son could ever give. He translated it into accessible language. Well, and I think you've done a great job as well, especially in this interview, because as I researched it, I was like, man, this stuff is fascinating. And I think anybody listening can understand a lot of it, but it takes rework. It takes going back over it. I think it's hard for the unscientific well, to get it like first time around. Well, here's the paradox. Yes, it's hard to get it. But once you get it, it says, oh, this is so intuitive. Of course, this is this is not even hard. This is this is the way it is, because you're getting closer to our basic uh, neurobiological heritage or evolutionary heritage. You're understanding who we are. And through that understanding, it starts making so much sense because it gives changes our personal narrative of our own lives. Right. Right. And let's um, talk about this again. The book is Our Polyvagal World. And I, I highly recommend it for anybody who has even slightly enjoyed this conversation because what it symbolizes, number one, as you said, it's more accessible. And number two, it discusses the impact of this idea on us in, in our everyday lives. Like, for example, in the office environment. For me, it gave me a an understanding of honestly, why I prefer to be at home most times as opposed to in the office, where we are commonly judged for that and seen as weak or lazy. There's an actual internal mechanism that impacts us all differently. 
Yeah. So from my own perspective as an academic, um, it's, it's quite disappointed that many academic departments are now primarily remote faculty as well. People don't want to go into their office because for me, the office was my social network. It was my co-regulatory. It was where ideas were shared. But that was academics from the 70s through, you know, things are changing is what I'm saying. And it's very interesting to step back and look at it <clears throat> through the rearview mirror and say, well, that was a wonderful time, but that's not where we are now. And now I have to kind of understand where we are. It's a, it's a good point, too. I talk to people at work about this all the time. It's not that I dislike the office. It's that I dislike being forced to be there during times where I have to do things that the office is not a conducive environment. I yeah. love going meeting, brainstorming, whiteboarding, love it. Yeah. I feel alive when I have to build a PowerPoint deck out in the open with noise yeah. everywhere. It's very yeah. disconcerting, I guess. Well, it is for your nervous system. Yeah. This is where the part is. We're talking about individual differences for some people. They zone out and they're okay. But for someone like you, and I would say someone like me, it's like saying, why, it's, a, it's, it's basically a death sentence. Why would I take that torture? And uh, so I like offices. I like privacy. I'm an academic at heart. But I like a, a degree of social behavior. And when I was, I would say, the active academic, I could pick and choose. And when I had a large laboratory... If I want a little sociality, I would go down and pick on my students and technicians. You know, exactly. I, there you and, go. And I, I had a nice conference room so I could bring people together and do exactly what you're doing. Close the door, have this brainstorming, have this, a shared discovery session. And it was really just it was remarkable. It was wonderful. Wow. You're just highlighting for me, just to throw this out there. In most organizations, the people who make the rules about where you should work also have offices, but the people who don't make the rules typically do not. And so you're just that, I mean, it's crazy. Last thing, when I was like, I don't know, 16, 17, one time I got a, a big shot at the doctors and I passed out and they said, oh, it's vasovagal syncope. And that's when I first became aware of the vagus nerve. It was astounding to me that like, there's a nerve, which I had never heard of, largest nerve in the body, I guess that can just cause me to lose consciousness yeah. for cognitively no reason. Yeah, well, there's a big reason. What it, what it was doing was triggering your system to stop pumping blood. <laughs> you know, it's like, Why would it do that? Because a lot of people this happens to. Yeah, well, you can even have what's called exercise-induced syncope, which is kind of the same thing. But yeah, I had the same thing. I was getting a type of x-ray with a contrast, and they had an infusion in it. And I went in there, I said, this tube is falling out, and can you fix it? And they twiddled it. They basically moved it around. Okay, but the point was, in twiddling it, they were stimulating an afferent pathway. A what? That, <laughs> a sensory pathway okay. that triggered a vasovagal syncope. Wow. So I crashed and my blood pressure really went really low. And they looked at me and said, why are you scared? Now, I wasn't scared. They had stimulated the sensory part of that reflexive limb and they didn't even know that. So that, that it was just, they hit a part of the pathway that. That's right. And what about That's that right. pathway though would say, you know what we should do right now? Okay, that would be the same type of pathway that if you were bleeding out would stop the pumping of blood. Oh. To, so there's this adaptive feature. So your body, in a sense, 
goes into this, it says more reptilian shutting down response. So there's, there's a slowing up, there's adaptive one. And if you're familiar with yoga, I, I visited uh, Calcutta in the 90s. And this was an interesting story because I met with yogas, one who had cut the linga, the connective tissue of the tongue. So he could roll the tongue backwards and literally go into a gag reflex because the gag reflex was a vagal reaction that would slow his heart rate up. And he said he did this when he was in a car wreck and saved his life. Basically, he put himself in that vasovagal state. Wow. Wow. So so the point I'm also saying is that there's a, a ancient knowledge of how that this manipulation can have some, let's say, health-related benefits in the short term. I mean, so the reason it happens to people when they get blood drawn could be that the body knows you're losing blood and knows that's a bad yeah. thing, so it's going to stop providing blood? Yeah. Yeah. It's not Holy. It's not fear. The, the rea- no, So there are cases where people have now a conditioned response, and that's uh, blood phobia or fear of these things. But in general, it's a they can be stimulating the sensory pathway that is really telling the brainstem you're bleeding out. I got to tell you, this stuff is incredible. I, I used to open up a world to me. I can't wait to dive even further into it all. Well, I think you understand why, even after all these decades, I'm still extremely enthusiastic about it. I know. It's a, it's a wonderful journey to be on because the more you learn, the more you can relate that to really to the life you're living. Exactly. And helping so many people understand it. Stephen, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The book, Our Polyvagal World, we're going to link to that. I'm also going to get that article from you yeah. and we'll post that on the website. Um, where else can people learn more, you know, p- past that? They can go to Polyvagal Institute website. Okay. And they can also go to my own website, which is Stephen Porges, uh, I guess.com. But Polyvagal Institute is polyvagalinstitute.org. Fantastic. Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Chris. Enjoy the time. All right. Have a good day. A thank you to this week's guest, Dr. Stephen Porges. The episode was hosted, as always, by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Dr. Porges's book, Our Polyvagal World, How Safety and Trauma Change Us, is available wherever books are sold. Now for the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up. And we'll see you all next episode.